0: We apologise to the listener, but the last few words on this tape were missing off the master recording. ...the word itself.
1: Whilst it may be interesting and instructive to talk about the Bible, after all it's got only one end in view, and that is to study the word itself. And I would like to say, now that we have reached this point, how very necessary it is that you should, without any coercion or persuasion from me, be reading uh, in the week preceding uh, as much as you can of what we're going to take on the Friday. Otherwise, you're only going to find, as I once used to, that um, I used to say always to myself, now I must read, I must read, um, that chapter or that letter through, and then the night came. And of course, whilst we, I gained quite a lot uh, uh, from that time. I was very sorry at the time that I hadn't read it. And then I always used to say to myself, "Now I will read it. I shall read it this coming week and get down to it." But we never did. And uh, so it's it's far the best thing to be quite. Uh, strong and definite with ourselves and in the week preceding say now I'm going to put aside a certain amount of time this week to really read, even if I don't understand it, just to read it to get the background so that when we come to this time on Friday we know something of the context. Uh, Now you should have read the first three chapters of Genesis and we can't this evening now read them uh, together. We will read the first chapter of Genesis, because all the time a, I'm going to be making references to these three chapters, and uh, you really do need to know something of what's in them. Now, I wonder if we could read together um, that, this first chapter. I wonder Pat whether you could read from verse 1 to verse 8.
2: In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was waste and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning, one day. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven.
1: And there was evening, and there was morning, a second day and, uh, Philip could you read from verse 9 to verse 19
3: God said let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear and it was so God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas and God saw that it was good and God said, Let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind upon the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, third day. And God said, Let there be a light in the firmament of the heavens, to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs, and for seasons, and for days and years. And let them be light in the firmament of the, of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to all the day, and the lesser light to all the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, and there was morning, a fourth day.
1: Thank you. Ken, do you think you could
0: read from verse 20 to verse 31? And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. (coughs) And God created great whales, and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle, and creeping thing, and beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind and every being that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he then. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed to you it shall be for meat and to every beast of the earth and to every fowl of the air and to everything that creepeth upon the earth wherein there is life I have given every green herb for meat and it was so and God saw everything that he had made And behold, it was very good, and the evening and the morning were the sixth day. And then we'll just
1: read the first four verses of chapter 2, because there shouldn't be a chapter division there. Actually, chapter 1 really ends with verse 4. And the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished, finished his work which he had made, And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because that in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now... (coughs) There are two or three things I want to say generally. I don't know how far we shall get this evening. I'm not going to try and put everything into one evening in these three chapters. Um, Why we're taking the first three chapters of the Bible is because they are absolutely essential and elementary to every single thing within the Bible. And that is what most people fail to realize that there is not one major doctrine which does not in some way evolve from these three chapters. (coughs) That's probably uh, the answer to the controversy which has raged over them. It is these three chapters that are always called the myth and the fable and uh, cannot be relied upon. Modern uh, science has shown that it's uh, hopelessly incorrect and inaccurate and so on. Um, The point really is that within these three chapters, you have everything. If we had no Bible, we have really everything within these three chapters. Of course, you know what we've often said in these past weeks, that the Bible in its revelation is progressive. That is, as you go on, it reveals more and more and more. But everything is found in seed form. in in these three chapters. And you'll find, within the three chapters, the church. And you'll find, within these three chapters, uh, the gospel. You'll find the cross in these three chapters. You'll find the lamb slain in these three chapters. You'll find God's eternal purpose in these three chapters. You'll find everything, really, within these three first chapters of the Word of God. (laughs) The first thing I want you to note about them is this. The ancient character, their ancient character, in literary method, style, and vocabulary. That is, these three chapters are quite unique in their ancient character. When you are dealing with the first three chapters, in fact, actually the first, almost the first eleven chapters, almost twelve chapters of Genesis, you are dealing with one of the oldest documents in world history. And as we would expect, the vocabulary and the style and the method are all absolutely within keeping uh, to their age. Um, You remember that many people um, thought a hundred years ago that writing uh, was not even known in the days of Moses. They now believe that writing went uh, thousands of years, uh, was known thousands of years earlier than Moses. And it is quite feasible indeed, I think it's more than feasible, it's probable that the first chapter of Genesis up to uh, chapter 2 and verse 4 is the uh, earliest written document in history. Certainly, everything about it is ancient. You go through the first three chapters of Genesis and you'll not find one really hard word. They're all, generally speaking, one or two-syllable words. Quite simple. Its simplicity is quite remarkable. Quite remarkable. Another thing that is also very interesting is the style. It is terse. In the Hebrew, it's even more terse than in English. Uh, things like um, God said, uh, uh, it says in verse 3, let there be light and there was light. In Hebrew, it's just let light be and light was. It's as simple and tus as that. That's the style of these three chapters. You read right the way through them, you'll find them terse and simple and direct. And another remarkable thing about it is method. Now, here we're, we are going later on, if not tonight, we shall see this. One of the most ancient Hebrew methods was what is called parallelism. That is, it was a form of poetry. You had a little introduction, and then you had a parallel three thoughts, and then parallel with them another three thoughts. Here you've got that method. You've got, first of all, an introduction in the first two verses, and then you've got three days, one, two, three. And then, parallel with them, you've got another three days. And then you've got the conclusion. And you've got the little, uh, what is called the colophon in ancient literature, particularly with tablets, they had a colophon, which just said at the end who was the writer or author. And here we have it. Um, We shall look at it more closely a little later in verse 4. These are the generations. That word generation is the word in Hebrew, which means history or book. Book or history. And indeed in the Septuagint version it's translated, this is the book of the history, of the creation of the heavens and the earth. And the author is the Lord God. Evidently, the revelation was committed to man by the Lord himself. Jewish tradition tells us that Enoch, it was to Enoch that this revelation was given, and that Enoch was the first man, according to the Jewish rabbis, was the first man ever to write, and he committed it to writing. Now, when we take the whole book of Genesis, we shall be be going into this question of tablets, clay tablets and early forms of writing and so on, particularly the (coughs) book of Genesis. So I just wanted to mention that to you. That's the first thing. The second thing I wanted to mention to you, have you ever realised how timeless uh, the three, these three chapters are? Now, one of the common and rather stupid remarks that you hear often made is, oh, it's so unscientific. Science contradicts these. But I can't believe Uh, the beginning of the Bible, science it's not scientific. Well, just supposing that the first three chapters of Genesis had been put into scientific terminology, no one, all through the history of man, would have been able to understand it except the 20th century. And one of the most remarkable things about these three chapters is just simply the way that they've been set forth in a way that every generation from the beginning has been able to understand. The very ancient peoples always spoke in a symbolical and in a very, very simple and direct way. Um, I've been fortunate in one way, blessed in one way, to have had to study Classical Chinese, and in Classical Chinese everything is tough and simple. The earlier you go, the older the manuscripts, the more simple, the more direct. It might all seem very mythical, but it's all put in very, very simple form. These three chapters of Genesis have survived the whole history of humanity and in every generation have been understood by the God. Now, isn't that wonderful? And yet, if they had been put into scientific terminology, it would have sealed this book up entirely. No one would have understood it until the twentieth century, and then only by certain scientific minds who are versed in it all, uh, uh, in the scientific terminology and ideas and so That, I say, is something very, very interesting, very, very wonderful. Another thing I want to point out to you this evening is that the creation story is preserved either in a fragmentary form or in a very, very uh, m- a much more embossed form in nearly every race and nation in the world. That is one of the most remarkable things. The Chinese, of course, have this story. They also have the story of the flood. It is much, much more uh, embellished and embossed than this. Uh, Lots more has come into it with gods and goddesses all over the place. The flood, when we come to it, I'll mention that in Chinese uh, mythology. um, There were eight people saved in a flood. They went to a boat and were saved in the flood. Inca uh, tradition also has the story of creation, very much the same as this. It also has the story of the flood. And we could um, uh, mention uh, many, many other nations that have this story in their um, history, as it were. Uh, the interesting thing is that the only clear and full account And, indeed, the most practical account is the account that we have here in the Bible. All the other great accounts, the Babylonian, the Chinese, the Inca, and so many other great um, civilizations, um, there's a lot that you just couldn't swallow. It's quite obviously uh, mythological. I just say that also in passing. Now, we're going to look at the three chapters together for a while. And I want you to see first that the um, key to these three chapters is very simple. Um, For those of you who know just a little bit more about these these opening chapters of the Bible, you will know that one of the great controversies that has centred Um, upon Genesis has been that there are supposed to be two contradicting accounts of creation. And if you have read um, the first three chapters, you will have seen it quite clearly. The first account, in Genesis 1, seems to contradict the account in Genesis 2. In Genesis 1, everything is created and ends with God creating man and woman. Then we have a duplication in Genesis 2. It seems as if the whole story is retold from a completely different source. And all the the modernists will say to you, different words are used, and different titles are used for God, and the whole context is different. Um, Man's made first, and then all the other things, the beasts and the flowers and the plants and everything else come after him, and then when all that's happened, woman is created. That's entirely a contradiction to Genesis chapter 1. You've got two entirely different accounts, and they say that Moses was a somewhat uh, ignorant man and he, to put it crudely, hashed up his work of editing. And instead of ruling out everything and making two accounts into one thoroughly good account, he sort of very very superficially glossed over them and left these two accounts in. And even more amusing, Genesis 3, um, from verse 1, I think, to verse 8, Again, it's the same as chapter 1. It's the same source. It somehow got uh, pushed in after the other, chapter 2. So you see, that's some of the ideas that have surrounded these chapters. Now, what is the key? Why has the Holy Spirit duplicated the account of creation in chapter 2? And what is the key to this obvious use of different words? Why does chapter 1 use certain words and chapter 2 use other words? What's the key to it? Well, if you get this clearly in your mind, I think it will help you greatly. Genesis 1 is the fact of creation. The fact of creation. From whence and how? Where did it come from? Where did it all come from? How did it come? Please, I want to ask some questions. Where did this universe come from? Where did man and woman come from? Where did life come from? Where did uh, this whole design and harmony uh, come from? And how did it come? How did it come into being? What was the method? Can you give me a clue to the method? Genesis 1 is the clue to where it came from and how it came into being. The fact of creation. Genesis 2 has an entirely different object, and that's why the whole thing is turned around in a different way, with a, 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 a meaning. Genesis 1 is the actual um, process of creation. The order, if you like. Genesis 2 is the purpose of creation. Or, unto what and why? Where is it all going? And why is it all here? What is the goal? And if that is the goal, why? That's in (coughs) Genesis 2. Genesis 3 is the fall of creation, the explanation of the present and the answer. That's very wonderful, the answer is in Genesis 3, the answer is there. The explanation of the present, in other words, supposing you put yourself in a kindergarten you're asking questions, and you're saying to your teacher, um, where
0: does why this all
1: come from? And then he answers you. But how, you're answered. Well, what is the purpose of it? What's the aim? You're answered. Uh, why? And you're answered. Then you may well turn around and say, but that doesn't tie up with what we've got at present. What's happened since? And Genesis three is the explanation of the present, what has happened, and God's answer to what has happened. You've got that clear? Now, the next thing I want you to note is the titles or names that are used for God in these three chapters, because in their use is a key, again, to an understanding. In Genesis 1, the name Elohim is used exclusively. Do you know how to spell that? Shall I put it down? Sorry to be uh, like school Elohim. That is used absolutely exclusively in Genesis 1. Now, we might as well get to an understanding of this name, because it comes all the way through Scripture. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And then right the way through Genesis 1, you get this used exclusively for God. Elohim. And its root meaning is the mighty or the strong one. And it always brings into view the God of creation. Whenever Elohim is used, it's always bringing into view God as the God of all creation. You get its form used in a lot of other ways. Elion, the Most High. Daniel uses that always, the Most High. Or El Shaddai, God the Almighty. And then, of course, you get it in all kinds of ways. Uh, El Bethel. God of the house of God, Beth El, and so you get it all the way through scripture, L L, El, God, Elohim in full, God, we're going to talk about that in a, a moment again, because it's very, very wonderful, you'll find it used again and again and again and again in Genesis 1, God said, God called, God divided, God did this, God did that, God did God of creation, God of all creation. It brings into view the majesty, the grandeur, and the immensity of God. Now, mark that, because in the 20th century, that is what is lacking. The majesty, the grandeur, and the immensity of God. Even I mean amongst the evangelicals, that the thing that is sadly lacking, our God is so small. You see, there's no longer that sense of the greatness of God, the sovereignty of God, the almightiness of God. It's a tremendous thing. The whole spirit of the 20th century is to belittle God and make him into some little departmental being you know, that uh, isn't really sovereign and can't really do anything he wants to. But Elohim speaks of the mightiness and the immensity of God. In Genesis 2, I don't have to put this down on the board, you'll all be able to spell this, the name Jehovah is used exclusively. Jehovah God. The two are brought together, Yahweh, Elohim the Lord God, Jehovah God, or Jehovah Elohim. We don't even really know how that name is pronounced, because the Jew was never ever able or allowed to utter it. He always had to be silent, pass it over, or um, uh, substitute another word for it. Uh, So we don't even know how it was pronounced, but we think it was pronounced Yahweh. Jehovah. And this name, wherever you find it in Scripture, speaks of the intimate God of redeeming love. The name by which he wanted to be known in the most inner, intimate marriage bond between himself and his people. He didn't want them just to know him as Elohim, he wanted his own to know him as Jehovah. And there's something so very, very wonderful about the name Jehovah. You can can think of it as the covenant God, the covenant-keeping God, the God who has bound himself to his people by love, by his own faithfulness. He has come down to their level and bound himself to them, the great God of creation has come right down on an intimate, personal, direct level and bound himself to you and you and you as his people. And he says, I will love thee with an everlasting love. Mm -hmm. That's Jehovah. And it brings into view the grace and the love and the mercy and the faith of God. Now whenever you read Jehovah in your Bible, you think about that. That means when the Lord says, I am Jehovah, he's always trying to make them think, you see. When he speaks to them as a little shaddai, he's got he's trying to tell them something else. But when he speaks to them as Jehovah, he's, he's as it were, trying to awaken cords of love in his people. He's saying, I'm, I'm the faithful. I'm the one who's full of love for you and mercy towards you, and grace before you. And the wonderful thing is, and this might surprise you, that Jehovah comes from the root, um, uh, its root meaning is to be. I am. You remember what he said to Moses, I am that I am. Go and say that I am has sent you. And I am uh, has come down to us as Yahweh, or Jehovah. That is, What does it mean? Well, isn't it wonderful? God wants to link his eternity, his unchangeableness, to the fact of his faithfulness. Now, that's very wonderful. In other words, he's not faithful for an age. He's not faithful for ages. He is faithful for eternity. In other words, the root form, the root meaning of Jehovah is unchangeableness. And he's linked that with grace, and love and mercy and faithfulness. We would have actually thought that the unchangeableness would have been linked with the God of creation, wouldn't we? But no, that's where we're wrong. Creation is more transient than the mercy and the love of God. The love of God in God's sight is the eternal thing. This creation is the transient in comparison. Now Genesis 1, uses Elohim. Genesis 2 uses Jehovah Elohim. Combining the God of creation with the God of redeeming love. That's very wonderful, isn't it? And then, something that you w- might want to note, in Genesis 3, the devil when he comes to Eve, never mentions God by the name Jehovah. Isn't that interesting? And of course the dear old modernists, they've got all their own theories for this, you see. They've decided that there's the E documents and there's the J documents, and, and then there's the P documents, and then the the JE documents, and all this kind of business, you see. they try to get round what the Holy Spirit is saying by saying that these were written by all different kinds of people, all fragments brought together in a very poor way. But you see, in Genesis 3, the devil says, it begins like this, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God, or Jehovah God, made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said? And all the way through, he speaks of him just as God, the God of creation, alone. And do you know the tragedy? When when Eve replies, she says, uh, For God doth that was the beginning of the fall it was the name, it's rather interesting in that way <coughs> the devil was going to keep off the redeeming side of God's nature with a very real pur- mind, purpose in view, I hope you realise that he knew that when the woman had fallen uh, he hoped that she would be so terrified that she'd never recover from it. But the wonder of it is that God made himself known to them, though, as the redeeming God of love. Even though he had to put them out the garden, he made himself known to them as the redeeming <coughs> God. Now, is that clear, then? In Genesis 1, we have uh, Elohim. In Genesis 2, we have Jehovah. Now, I want you also to note something else. <laughs> The words create, <laughs> make, and form. The words create, make, and form. The first one is the Hebrew word, I'll put it up here if you want to make notes, Bara, bara, And it is used three times in Genesis 1. In the first verse, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 21, and God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moveth wherewith the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind. And verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him male and female created he them. This word, to create, bara, came originally, possibly, it's not quite known where it came from, from a root which meant to cut off, to cut off a piece, you see, and then to work on it. But in this context, it always means a definite sovereign act of creation. In other words, whenever the word bara is used, it means that God is doing a new thing. It has no relationship to what we see. Now that's very important. This word is used three times. God created the heavens and the earth without anything pre-existing. He created. It was a, an act of sovereign creation. God created the sea monsters and the things that swarm in the water, and the birds, the winged creatures. That is the beginning of animal life. The word is used again. Creation. God created. And then when He comes to man, human life, God created. That is, it was a sovereign act of creation. It was absolutely sovereign. In other words, it was by the word of God. And it was sovereign. That is the method. It was sovereign. (coughs) This word is only used in Genesis 1. It's used elsewhere in the word, but in these three chapters, it's only used in Genesis 1. And we have mentioned those three times. The second word that is used, and it's used in the Old Testament 2,500 times approximately, is the word asa, and it means nearly everything, quite honestly. You have to rely on context, like you do with many ancient languages, you have to rely on context to know exactly what it does mean. But it means here to make, to do, or to fashion. To make, to do, or to fashion. And this word asa, always means you are fashioning something which already exists. Now, that's very important. In other words, you're working on something which is already there. Create, creation, the word create or bara, means either you're bringing something out of nothing or you are doing something with, with a material without any relationship to what it was before. In other words, no evolution. It's a sovereign act. But uh, athab is quite different. It's taking something like clay, or something like that, and moulding it, fashioning it, see? There may be a process in it. Very, very wonderful. And then, and this is the wonderful thing, Genesis 2 has a different word. It is the word yatta. And this word means to form or to fashion and is generally used of the potter and the clay. To form or to fashion. Now, this is the wonderful thing. By the way, the word Asa is used in verses 7, 16, 25 and 31 of Genesis 1. Shall I say it again? 7, 16, 25 and 31. The word Yatsa is used in Genesis 2, 7, 8, and 19. The Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. This word yata is really very, very thrilling to uh, investigate. Um, It means to... um, in some connections, it does not mean here, but it has got in some connections the meaning to preordain or to devise or to plan. Now that's very wonderful. And today, as you know, Arabic is the modern uh, only language, in any way, corresponds to Hebrew, ancient Hebrew. And in Arabic today, the word is still used for covenant or contract. Yes, sir. Covenant or contract. And that's very, very wonderful, because then, now listen, you've got, bring it all together, you've got Genesis 1, Elohim, the God of all creation, His immensity, His grandeur, His majesty, and what is the word that's used in Genesis 1? Barah. Create out of nothing. Sovereign activity. And then the word Atha is also used. The God of creation, fashioning and moulding. It's method, you see. It's method, That's the point there. But in Genesis 2, where you've got Jehovah in view, it is the potter and the clay. He's planning something. He's purposing something. He's, as it were, contracting something. He's got something in mind, you see. And he's working it to the end. He's fashioning something right to the end. It's very, very wonderful how the Holy Spirit has, has chosen the words of these three chapters. you got those two accounts of creation and they have been carefully, carefully worded. So in the fact of creation, you've got the uh, Elohim acting quite solemnly. And even when the word atha is used, it still relates it to God's <coughs> sovereign activity, you see. The birds and the fish and the sea monsters, which we may, if we have time, look at a little more closely, um, were, may well have evolved. There may be a process in their uh, creation, which is within the word. I mean, the word suggests it, implies it. But behind it is creation. The word bara is used in it, you see. In other words, it's still God. Whatever the method that is used in Genesis 1 for creation in this universe, it is the God of sovereign activity that's behind it. Whether he's bringing something into being that was never there before, uh, as the heavens and the earth, or whether he's bringing out of the waters, causing the waters to swarm with swarming things, or the word literally means team with teeming things, and uh, whether he's causing the wing things, which are insects and birds of every kind, to, to uh, come into being, you see. And maybe out of the water, the possibility that they had something to do with water, the beginning. Uh, or whether it's the sea muscles, It's the God of sovereign activity. Or whether he's doing a new thing altogether, as with man. He's doing a new thing. Quite definitely. He takes the clay of the ground and molds it, and then breathes into it, and man becomes a living soul. Now, there's another thing I want you to know, I hope you're not bored. There's another thing I want you to do. This word here is very, very interesting. It's a thing the rabbis could never get over. Now, listen to this. It is a word which is plural. Now, isn't that wonderful? and they could never understand it. And the rabbis always got over it by saying, well, it must mean God having fellowship with the angels. That's what they always said. Because Elohim is in the plural, and really is a plural noun. It, it is, as it were, uh, God's, and yet not God's. The idea is a plurality in unity. Well, isn't that the Trinity? And you've got it in the first three or four words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. Now here's another wonderful thing. This, ver- this noun, Elohim, is always used with a verb in the singular. So that uh, the the thought is that the Trinity is moving in unity all the time. In the beginning, God created as as one person. They could never understand this. And of course, you see, when they came uh, down to, uh, you've got uh, Genesis 2, it says you've got the whole Trinity here, you see. Chapter 1, verse 1, you've got, in the beginning, God
2: created.
1: That is what I've already said in the plural. Created is in the singular. Now look at verse 2. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of of the waters. The Spirit of God moved, or hovered, on the face of the waters. You've got the third person of the Trinity mentioned there. Now look at verse 26. God said, let us make. Let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion. That's Rather remarkable, isn't it? Let us. Speaking of God. And then in chapter 3 and verse 22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. But well, the rabbis could never understand that. They always said it was God talking with the angels. And said, You see, to the angels round about and, him, uh, and See what's happening, let us make. But then that's surely not quite right. The angels didn't actually join um, a sovereign uh, equality with God in the creation of this world, did they? They are themselves a creation. So we see that here there is the first and earliest inference to the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're working here. You know the word, the, the name Jehovah, is a name that is peculiarly associated with the Lord Jesus, Jehovah. And the tree of life, of course, is again something which is associated with the Lord Jesus. He said, I am the life, or I am the true vine. The lot that is associated with this tree of life in the midst of the garden. So we've got there the whole trinity in covenant together in the creation of of the universe and the creation of man. We've got it all. If you want to note down these things, these are things you'll find. In these first three chapters of Genesis, we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We have the eternal purpose of God. Now where's the eternal purpose of God? Where do you find the eternal purpose of God in these three chapters? Well, it's here, first of all, the tree of life in the midst. The tree of life is associated with the eternal purpose of God. Do you know what it means? It means a humanity in utter dependence for its life and the fulfilment of its responsibility on Christ, King of Life. That is, the only way God's purpose was that humanity could only live insofar really live, I mean, with a capital L, you know, not what this living death live could only live insofar as it was utterly dependent on Christ. And it could only fulfill its responsibility to have dominion over all things, insofar as it was dependent on Christ. That is the eternal purpose of God, and it is summed up in the man and the woman, the institution of marriage. So many think it's something that was instituted for our benefit. It was instituted for the reproduction, of course, of humanity, but primarily to show forth in picture form the eternal purpose of God. Marriage is a symbol of the eternal purpose of God. What is the end? The end is humanity in union with God, in utter union with God, and in utter dependence on God. The woman was taken out of man's side and fashioned. In other words, she was not as man. She was taken out of man. In the same way, That humanity is, as it were, taken out of Christ. That's the thought. By eating the tree of life should become incorporated into Christ. Incorporated into Christ. In union with Christ. In such a union of dependence and mutual fellowship and love Mm. that the whole question of of, of of responsibility for the universe was to be fulfilled. The eternal purpose of God. If you want to sum it up in two things, you may. Christ, the centre and thumb of all, and secondly, a people in union with Christ. That's the eternal purpose of God. Christ, the sum and the centre, centre and sum thumb of all, and then a people in union with Christ. In this first three chapters, you have the probation of man and the fall of man. That is, something awful happened. And the whole thing was wrecked from the beginning. And wrecked, mind you, in such a way, in such a way, that even when we come to know the Lord, our greatest battle is with our own deceived selves. Something happened at that fall which has left an amazing mark. So intricate and so deep is the work of Satan in humanity. This can be seen in every way. It can be seen in the absolutely spontaneous distrust of God. And that's one of our biggest battles when we come to the Lord. A quite spontaneous distrust of the Lord. It can be seen in the way that humanity was blinded utterly to God's character, quite blinded to what God is like. And then it can be seen in every single way in man. The whole relationship between the husband and wife smashed, smashed beyond recognition, so that by the very curse itself, the whole thing became perverted, reorientated, and became a thing uh, that that binds people, chains people, fetters people all their lives. Corruption came in there. Man became a slave to the thing over which he should have had dominion. By the sweat of his brow he had to earn his living, and the ground, instead of being flexible and pliable, uh, yielded thorns and thistles and briar and the whole thing got on top of him. Uh, everything got on top of him. So that man is now under it all. Absolutely under it all. That is all in the first three chapters of Genesis. and Oh, if people would only read the first three chapters of Genesis for an understanding they would come to of themselves and of what uh, Satan has done in us. But so then, thank God, it's not only the probation and the fall in those first three chapters, but there's the cross and the slain. Those are there in the first three chapters of Genesis. What a wonderful word that is when God said to Satan, Satan began it all. And when the fall came, you would have thought God would have turned around on man, blamed man, blamed woman. But no... The first words God had were of rebuke. for Satan. And he said these wonderful words. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. He shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, because it's this is a very veiled reference. But Eve knew what he was talking about. And it's a very wonderful thing that a bit later Adam called um, Isha, that's her first name, uh, taken out of me. He called her Eve, the mother of all living. That's very, very wonderful. Because Adam had come into the realm of death, but he called Eve the mother of all living. Do you know why? Because she said, I have gotten a man with the help the Lord. She really wondered, I think at the very beginning, as to whether her first was going to be the deliverer, there and then, as we all do. We like to think it's going to be right within our lifetime. And she he really wondered whether this was the Messiah, straight away. The Lord's promise. What was the Lord's promise? Well, he said a most amazing thing. He said that humanity from henceforth was going to be divided into two streams. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. What an awful thing that is. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is what we call the good seed or the godly seed. The seed of the serpent is what we call the evil seed or the bad seed. It began right there. Cain was of his father, the devil. He was of the bad seed. Seth, Abel, was of the good seed. And so was Seth who replaced him. You remember Cain's school Abel. So we've got two great um, streams of humanity. One, down which line comes Enoch, Noah, Terah, Abraham, Isaac. Jacob, Joseph, and Moses, and so on, right the way down to the Messiah. On the other, you've got the evil seed. It's a terrible story. (coughs) Terrible story. Cities come into being as the product of the evil seed. Cities were the product of the evil seed. And music, and murder, fornication, adultery, every kind of evil came in with the seed of the serpent. Now we're all born naturally the seed of a serpent which is the most terrible thing but we can all become the seed of the woman and isn't it a wonderful thing as someone has said that there at the very beginning was the virgin birth, not the seed of man but the seed of woman conceived seed of the Holy Ghost I think perhaps you've had enough uh, tonight uh, we won't, I think we'll leave I have just one or two things to say more, and we'll close this and I think we'll take Genesis 1 uh, in a more intimate way next week a more detailed way next week you've got the three chapters there I have just one other thing to say you see the cross and the land it's all in these three chapters where is the cross? I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed. And that's the story of humanity. The violent hatred of the bad seed for the good seed. Such a hatred as will blot out the good seed whenever it's possible. Destroy it. And that's always been the way. But listen to this. He shall bruise thy head and... He he shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. What does that mean? It means that the cross is, as it were, the smashing of Satan's head. And all Satan could do was to bruise the heel of the Messiah. In other words, the death of the Lord Jesus is looked upon as a bruising of his heel, because he rose again. But the the cross is looked upon as the slaying of Satan. You see, the decapitating of Satan. Smashed his head. And all he could do was bruise the heel of the Messiah. That's the cross. The cross is there, promised in Genesis 3. And then, of course, perhaps you know this, the most wonderful of all was in verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife coats of skin and clothes. You know, this is very, very wonderful. Could we just stay with it just for one moment? Um, if you can bear with me a little longer. And that is the wonderful uh, fact that in Genesis 3 we have the beginnings of something which has become woven into our old nature. Isn't it a strange thing? Do you know what um, Adam and Eve did as soon as they fell? It's rather um, unpleasant uh, to talk about exactly what did happen. Two or three things happened. The, the only thing we can say at present um, is that they became self-conscious. That was one of the great marks of the fall. Actually there's a good deal more that happened by the fall, more than self-conscious, which i leave you to find out. Uh, it's there in the Word. But it is something which is found in the world. But the thing that they found was this. They went further than that. They went and stitched themselves aprons of leaves. Well, we think that's very commendable, you see. Uh, Having suddenly discovered that they were naked and become extremely self-conscious, they stitched Well, Now, why didn't the Lord sort of say that's most commendable of you? You've covered uh, your sins. The fact that you are now empty and aimless and miserable. You've lost the glory. You've lost your original state and condition. But you know what the Lord did? He took them and he made them clothes of skin. Now some people very foolishly say um, how unjust and severe God was with a cane because he brought the fruits of the ground, whereas Abel brought a little ram, a firstling of his flocks, and Abel was accepted, and Cain was rejected, and people say, it seems a bit unfair. But the whole point was this. There could have been nothing more vivid in the mind of Adam and Eve as, than this, that when they had made themselves clothes of skins, God, as it were, undressed them again and gave them clothes of skins. That is clothes of leaves I meant before, I'm sorry, clothes of leaves before. He undressed them and gave them clothes of skin. Now what does that mean? No natural self-made covering can possibly give us access before God. The only thing that can cover us is the death of another leaves, with leaves there was no death, but with skin there was the death of a lamb. So their sin was covered, and although God put them out of the garden, it was actually grace that put them out of the garden. He didn't want to stay there, he wanted to put